0: Please turn your Bible to Deuteronomy 1. This is on page 136 of the Bibles provided in the seat in front of you or below you. Page 136, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Last week we began a series through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I argued that this book is the hinge on which the rest of the Old Testament hangs. So the first four books of the Old Testament are building toward the book of Deuteronomy, and then every book of the Old Testament from here on out only makes sense if you understand what Deuteronomy is doing as a whole and how it fits into the Bible as a whole, particularly the Old Testament as a whole. So last week uh, we were looking at Deuteronomy. If you were on Google Street View, it would be like you're zoomed out to see all of Chicago. Chicago. And now we're zooming in to see all of one neighborhood. So we're still at a pretty high level as opposed to the you know, smaller passage in Luke being on Google Street View. But here we are uh, giving somewhat of an overview of chapters 1 through 4. We will not look at each section of this passage together. It would be simply too long. But I will say that after preaching basically through all of Luke two weeks ago and basically all of Deuteronomy last week, this feels like a breeze to preach only four chapters of the Bible. So um, I'm thankful for that. But this is still no small section. Really, just these four chapters is longer than many New Testament books, uh, even longer than some Old Testament books, some of the minor prophets especially. And so this is uh, still some work to get our arms around this, to understand what's going on in these four chapters Uh, There's also the added challenge of the fact that there are many names and places mentioned in these four chapters that we just don't know anything about, and so maybe it's kind of like going to a new city where you're saying, oh yeah, take a ride on such and such a street and you're going to be in this neighborhood, and you've never heard of these neighborhoods before, and you have no idea who these people are, and so we're going to have some challenges from that, but nonetheless, uh, this is an important section in the book of Deuteronomy as we learn essentially what the book is doing, and uh, See how the Lord uh, is helping his people to review where they have come from so that they know how to move forward in faith uh, from here. So please follow along. I'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 1 out loud. You can read silently as I read Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 8. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Ereba, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei, Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, "'You have stayed long enough at this mountain. "'Turn and take your journey "'and go to the hill country of the Amorites "'and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, "'in the hill country and in the low land "'and in the Negev and by the sea coast, "'the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon "'as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. "'See, I have set the land before you. "'Go in and take possession of the land "'that the Lord swore to your fathers, "'to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob.' to give to them and to their offspring after them. As you know, this time of year, students all over the country are wrapping up their academic uh, responsibilities for the semester. Some, of course, will continue on in summer school, uh, but for the vast majority, they move on to new opportunities for the summer, at least, uh, whether that be college or high school or even younger students. The challenge with this time of year, as I'm sure Teresa and others in education know very well is keeping students motivated to the very end. Uh, Perhaps you know very vividly how hard it can be to see the light at the end of the tunnel and know that it's there and want to stop before you get to the very end. Uh, Many students get in trouble this time of year academically and in a variety of other ways because they let their guard down. They figure there's not much more they're going to learn, so what's another day of cuts, or what's a day of, you know, lying in bed all day. Uh, they're excited about what the summer holds. For students who have done well academically, they typically know at this point how many points they can afford to not get and still keep their grades the way they wanted to. I just talked to somebody yesterday who was like, I haven't missed a single point all semester, so I hardly have to study for this exam, for this particular exam. Uh, And and you can still keep your A-plus without studying for this final exam. So the point is, students often lack motivation this time of year. Perhaps you've had a similar experience with your job. You know, it's a Friday afternoon. You skip out the last couple hours of work to get ready for the weekend. Uh, Perhaps you're just exhausted by being worn down by your children. So what's one night of letting them not brush their teeth or whatever the temptation might be figure you can just let your guard down. It's not going to be a big deal. Uh, it's, it's easier to not correct your children, to not finish your homework, to not show up at work on time, and so on. Bottom line is, we often lack motivation to fulfill our God-given responsibilities. This was the situation that God's people, the nation of Israel, was in. Uh, When we come to the book of Deuteronomy, you go from the the gap, if you want to call it that, from the end of Numbers into the beginning of Deuteronomy. What's happening here? You have a lot of lethargic people, a lot of people who are ready to throw the towel in. Moses is dealing with a large group of people who are struggling on the motivation front. They've been in the wilderness so long, what's one more year, right? You've been there for 40 years no, it actually is a big deal, and these people have been wandering for 40 years as judgment for their disobedience, for their unbelief, and now the Lord is telling them that they've wandered long enough. Go take that land. That's essentially what the, the passage that we read a few minutes ago said. You've, you've been going around this way. Take your journey. Go take the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what do God's people, who seem to be lacking in motivation themselves, need in order to go take this land. They need to hold fast to God as he leads you, as he leads them. And you need to do the same thing in your responsibilities, in your life. Hold fast to God as he leads you, as he helps you with your responsibilities, loving your family, doing your job, fulfilling your educational responsibilities, and so on. You hold fast to God as he leads you. We as Christians are not marching through a literal wilderness the way that Israel was in this passage. But we are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are sojourners. These are all biblical names, biblical words to describe what it's like to live the Christian life. Peter particularly uses this language in in 1 Peter that we are strangers and exiles following the Lord. And I've mentioned before how a pastor in New York, Tim Keller, said that if you were to ask somebody who had just crossed the Red Sea in the book of Exodus who are you and where are you going? And essentially his answer is, or their answer would have been, we're the people of God. We're following God who has worked miraculously for us and we're going to follow him all the way to the promised land. And we as Christians essentially say the same thing. We've been redeemed out of slavery to sin, to the evil one, and God has miraculously rescued us and we're following him all the way to the promised land, which in our case is the new heavens and the new earth. So we aren't facing the enemy armies that Israel was, but we do face the temptations of the evil one. We may not face the hunger and thirst in the wilderness that God's people did, but we do know what it is to face persecution and mocking from a wicked world. And we do know the weakness of our own flesh as we seek to follow the Lord. So if you know that no, we don't have physical armies chasing us down right now, praise the Lord. If we know, though, that We have temptations from the evil one. We have sin in our own hearts and temptations in our own hearts. We have mocking and persecution from a watching world. How do I hold fast to God as he leads me? That should be the question you want to ask yourself. And the text gives us two answers. And the first is in chapters 1 through 3. Like I said, we're not going to study every individual section here. But in chapters 1 through 3, the way you hold fast to God is you consider how he has led you in the past. Consider how God has led you in the past. And then I'll just go ahead and tell you the second way is chapter 4. Follow him in obedience in the present and the future. So consider how God has led you in the past and follow him in obedience in the present and the future. But here in chapters 1 through 3, consider how God has led you in the past. He has made amazing promises to you. And The passage that John read for us from Genesis 28 reminds us of God telling the nation of Israel, or telling Abraham's family, which later became the nation of Israel, you will be a great nation. So go and be fruitful and multiply. And that's the language that God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And then that's the language he told Noah, be fruitful and multiply. It's a language that he tells Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then you come to the beginning of Exodus and and you read, they were fruitful and they multiplied because they had been fruitful and they multiplied, which basically means they had lots and lots of babies, now they're a great nation. And so God has said, go do this. They have done this. There are lots of them. But even that is a reminder of God's faithfulness because look at uh, Abraham, how hard it was for him and his wife to have a baby. And God miraculously provided a baby for them. And you can see this trend throughout the Old Testament. But, we read the passage that John read mentioned an allusion to Genesis 15, which I'll read just briefly for you, where God tells Abraham, I'll just, I'll just start at verse 3. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he, the Lord, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. If you look at your Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we didn't read this far down, but verse 10, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's Moses taking Genesis 15 language, and again Genesis 28 language and on and on, To say, God has kept his promises. He told you, you're going to be a great nation. And now he's shown you that he is doing that. He's making you a great nation. He's given you people like the stars of the sky. He's made amazing promises. He's said he's going to give you land and lots of children. We sometimes summarize that into the word seed or offspring. Land, seed, and blessing. And by giving you blessing, you go then and bless the nations, bless the world. We do that by sharing the gospel, essentially. So God has made amazing promises. Consider how God has led you in the past. Secondly, he's, so for, under this, considering how God has led you, he's made amazing promises. Secondly, he's overcome your own hard hearts. We talked about this to some extent last week, that the reason we need the gospel is because our hearts run away from the Lord. We sang this today. I was running a hell-bound race, and I was indifferent to the fact that God was calling me. And he sovereignly and gloriously took me from running that race and placed me into his glorious family, making me an enemy into his child. That is amazing. But the reason we needed God to do that is because of our own hard hearts. In chapter 1, verses 19-33 through 33 tell us that Israel, instead of taking the land, fearfully refused and disbelieved the Lord. I want to read a section here from chapter 1. Again, this is verses 19 through 33 essentially what chapters 1 through 3 is doing Moses is telling the story of how God has led his people and that's why the title of the sermon is reviewing the journey it's just like he's looking back for three long chapters at all God has done for his people so listen here as as I read in verse 20 you have come to the hill country of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us see the Lord your God has set the land before you Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, and this is going back to Numbers 13, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. Moses said, The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out, And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Perfect. You've seen the glorious promised land. If you go back and read Numbers 13, you read, Hey, guess what? It's actually flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful place. We're going to survive and thrive there. And look at the size of these grapes from this place. But we can't go in there. The people that live there are huge. They're giants. There's no way we could overcome them. And that's what you come to in verse 16, or 26, I should say. Look at the transition. Like, oh, this is a beautiful land. Yet you would not go up. Why? Because of your hard hearts. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. Earlier back in Exodus, you were praising God for rescuing you out of slavery. Now you're saying God must really hate us if he brought us out here into the wilderness. You murmured in your hearts. You're saying, where are we going? Our brothers have made our hearts melt. That's referring to the spies who went into the land to see, is this a good place for us to go? Oh, yeah, this is a good place for us to go. We should go. But the spies were like, mm, no, I don't think so. Except for Caleb, right? Caleb was like, we should totally go. God's with us. He's going to fight for us. That's all in Numbers 20, uh, Numbers 13. I will say, if you would like to prep for this series in Deuteronomy, go read Numbers <laughs> Also Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. But, especially Numbers, and you'll really feel like you can navigate through this passage a little bit better. So again, our brothers in verse 28 have made our hearts melt. The people are greater and taller than we. There are giants in that land. There's no way we could go and overcome them. Verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt. Remember, you crossed that Red Sea. God fought for you. And he's fought for you in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Another yet, though. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night, in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Does that not stun you that they have seen the glory of God in cloud and in fire? Yet, mm, there's no way he can fight for us. He carved a path through the Red Sea. There's no way he's going to do anything like that again. We can't trust him. And that line in verse 32, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. It reminded me of Luke, surprisingly, I know. I preached Luke for like two years for those of you that are here for the first time. Uh, just finished recently. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is in the temple making a sacrifice, and voila, an angel shows up next to him and says, You're going to have a child. I'm here to report from God that you're going to have a child and he's going to go before the Messiah. And Zechariah is like, yeah, but I can't trust you. And and Gabriel says, no, I just want to be clear. I just was in the throne room of God, and he told me to come and tell you that you're going to have a child. And you did not believe. And so what happened to Zechariah? He couldn't talk for a while. It appears maybe he was deaf as well based on the fact they were making signs to him because, and it's the same language in Luke 1, because you did not believe the Word of God. It's bad to not trust your friends when they tell you something. It's really bad to not trust God when He says something's going to happen and you choose not to believe it. But this is what God's people have done. Instead of taking the land, you fearfully refuse and disbelieve the Lord. And so... Instead of going to take the land, the Lord judged their disbelief and their rebellion by not allowing the adults to go see the land, verses 34 through 46. I won't read this whole section, but essentially, the Lord said, until this generation of unbelieving, hard-hearted people dies off, you will not go into that land. It took 40 years for that generation of adults to die away. The children, in other words, were not culpable to the same degree. This is clear, especially in chapter 2. They were not as culpable as the adults were because they were not the ones who chose not to go into the land. They weren't supposed to be the fighting ones. They were not the men of valor is what the passage calls them, the people who actually go into battle. And so I think, just as a word of philosophy of ministry here, this should inform our understanding of children in ministry. Like We love children. We want to bless them. We want to teach them the gospel. Several of them are in another room right now hearing the word of God taught on their level and uh, and so forth. But I think this idea of the culpability of the adults as opposed to the children inform our thoughts about children and church membership, children and baptism. I love seeing children who wholeheartedly follow Jesus, who want to follow him, who sing praise, who smile, who um, delight to be at church. I love it. And I pray the Lord continues to send us more young families who will fill this church with young children who sing the praises of Jesus But if we had said, sing the praises of Allah instead, and we just kept catechizing them in that, they would do that because they do what we tell them to do. And so we need to be careful to not assume that a child is ready to follow God at any cost and to take up their cross and follow him at any cost when they're like five or eight. Again, one of our children is kind of weakly, basically asking, so am I past the threshold of when I can get baptized yet? and we're kind of like we are so glad you love Jesus and you want to be baptized. Let's keep having this conversation. Like, okay, and we're we're good for another week. But I'm just saying like we want to make sure that our children know what it looks like to follow Jesus when no one else in their class is following Jesus. When all their friends are looking at pornography and you have to walk out of the room in order to not see it. When all of their friends are going to crazy parties after school on Friday night. And our kids have to know what it looks like to follow Jesus at that point. So I'm not saying there's like a minimum age, but all I'm saying is the passage tells us the children weren't held responsible for the fact that they didn't go into battle. The adults were held responsible. And not until they died could the people of God go out of uh, the wilderness. So the Lord judged the disbelief and rebellion by not allowing the adults to see the land. Even Moses, this is the third, consider how God has led you in the past, even Moses faced the consequences for his own anger and unbelief. This is in chapter 3, verses twenty three through 29. We're just going to skip back and forth a little bit here in these early chapters. Even Moses faced the consequences for his own unbelief and anger. He asks to go in the land. In verse 23, remember back in Numbers again, uh, Moses was, said, was told by God, you're not going to be able to go into the land because of your anger. At Korah. Here in verse 23, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession at the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. And that charging Joshua, that encouraging him, that happens at the end of the book as Moses essentially passes the mantle onto Joshua but in this case, you notice the Lord's judgment on Moses for his own rebellion, for his own disbelief, his own anger. But did you notice the sliver of God's mercy as well? He didn't say, stop asking, never say a word of it again, and that's it. He said, stop asking, but I will let you see it from the mountaintop. You can cast your eyes on it. That is the Lord's mercy to Moses. Yes, there are consequences for your sin, but there are, there's the silver lining of his kindness as well even in the in the judgment here so consider what God is how he has led you in the past he made amazing promises he's overcome your own hard hearts he has provided for and protected us this is in chapter 2 verses 1 through 15 He provided and protected during the wilderness judgment. And again, I won't read this whole section just for the sake of time. We'll spend a little bit more time looking at individual sections in chapter 4 in a moment. But here in the first 15 verses of chapter 2, the Lord protected his people through the wilderness judgment. And look especially at verse 7. This is chapter 2, verse 7 of the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, You have lacked nothing. I just want to urge you to put on your biblical theology antenna for a second and sort of scan the horizon of the Old Testament and think, where else have I heard this phrase of you have lacked nothing or you shall not want anything. This is Psalm 23 language. This is exactly Psalm 23 language. It's just translated, you have lacked nothing instead of you shall not want Uh, That's forward-looking, this is backward-looking, but it's the exact same Hebrew language here. God has faithfully taken care of every single one of his people, and he will continue to do that. If you are one of the Lord's sheep, he is your shepherd, and because of that, you lack nothing. But I understand in a room with this number of people that not every single one of us necessarily is one of his sheep. And so you might ask that question of how do I become one of these sheep so that I truly lack nothing, at least in in an eternal sense. And the answer is you become one of the Lord's sheep by putting your faith in the good shepherd who is himself Jesus. The book of John says that this shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life for his friends. And so he hears the voice of his sheep when we call on him. And so I want to urge you, if you are outside of faith in Christ, you're kind of on the outside looking in, you're investigating Christianity, you're trying to figure out what you believe, or maybe you're convinced of what you already believe, but you're willing to at least spend a little bit of time with those crazy Christians and find out what they believe, praise the Lord that you're here. And I want to urge you to hear this word and to recognize that the Lord wants to be your shepherd. And he is calling out to you with arms open wide, and he showed his love for you, he demonstrated his love for you by sacrificing his own son on the cross. And so, the Lord is your shepherd. When he is your shepherd, you lack nothing. And that's what the nation of Israel experienced. They went through those 40 years lacking nothing because of the Lord's faithful provision. So he has provided for and protected us, and then fourth here, in considering how God worked in the past, he has overcome mighty enemies. This is especially chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, In the beginning of uh, chapter 3, he has overcome the mighty enemies that were in the way of God's people taking the land that he had given to them. So in chapter uh, 2, verses 26 through 37, you read about this king named Sihon who was not willing to let God's people pass through the land. You see that in verse 30. I'm just kind of skipping the question. Hey, please let us go through your land. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, in verse 30, would not let us pass by him For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And I just want to ask you where else in the Old Testament do you hear about the hard heart of one of God's enemies? This would be Exodus chapter 12 language. This is Sihon is in the place of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is in the place of the evil one who resists God's people. You have seed of the serpent, seed of the woman language throughout the Bible. The seed of the serpent are those who are opposed to God's people. Pharaoh was one of those people who was opposed to God's people. Just like Goliath was, and just like Nebuchadnezzar was, and just like Belshazzar was, and Herod, and you could go on and on. Sihon was like Pharaoh. He would not allow God's people to go through, but you also see that God's hand is mysteriously and miraculously at work here so that God's people would go over and take this land Verse 31, "...begin to take possession that you may occupy this land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle, and the Lord our God gave him over to us." This was the Lord doing the fighting. This was the Lord going before his people and providing for them. Same thing essentially happens in chapter 3. So that was Sihon. Now you have a different king at a different place named Og. Og, king of Bashan, who was apparently a giant. You get that in verse 11 of chapter 3. This is kind of an interesting little note why do you think Moses would have included this little note? For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Riphaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron, which means it was really probably uh, pretty strong. It is not, or Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? It's like they took his bed as a trophy of the reminder that they conquered him. Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. In other words, this bed was humongous. It was probably like 13 feet long. This guy was a giant, in other words. Og was really strong. He was a really mighty warrior. And you overcame him by the power of God. And you took his bed as a reminder that you overcame him by the power of God. I think Shaquille O'Neal has a bed that uh, is like 15 by 10 or 15 by 30 or something ridiculous. And I would think if I were the maid in Shaquille O'Neal's house, I'd be like, yeah, we're done after the first day of having to make his bed for him because it's so big. Just a reminder, giant people are really strong and you overcame this giant king. And if the Lord has overcome Sihon and Og in powerful, miraculous ways, don't you think that he can be trusted to overcome the other kings in these other lands that I'm telling you to go take? So go And don't be afraid. That's what the Lord is telling his people to do. In other words, you often hear past performance is no guarantee of future results. That's true in financial investments, that is not true in theology. Your God has worked in the past the way he will work in the future. You can trust him. His past performance is just a sign of more of what's to come. You have no reason to be afraid encourage you, even as Moses was helping his people, his friends, his family and so forth, to review history for the benefit of your soul right now, I want to urge you to do the same thing. Particularly review church history but any history will do because you understand that God is working powerfully in even wicked people throughout uh, the history of the world and especially study your own history, your own family and how God has brought you to salvation and how he has worked to overcome the obstacles in your life in the past. You notice how many times in this passage, even just reading quickly through it, how many times Moses told Joshua and the other Israelites, don't be afraid, have confidence, you can know the Lord is with you, and I just want to urge you, Christian, to fight anxiety and fear with the knowledge of God. Keep going back to the well of God's word. Even mighty giants are in his hand. All this is a preview even of how God would overcome Goliath in 1 Samuel. So what we've seen so far is that we uh, should consider how God has led you in the past. And secondly, follow him in obedience in the present and future. And this is chapter 4. Follow him in obedience in the present and the future. We'll move very quickly through this. Essentially, I'll give you, without even reading the sections, which is not what I plan to do, but uh, just to encourage you to go home and look at these, I'll give you five reasons to obey God according to chapter 4. The first is in verses 1 through 4, God judges when we are unfaithful. So obey Him. Verses 1-4, through God judges when we are unfaithful. Secondly, obey Him because God's law is good. And what the passage says is there's no comparison. Go to the East, go to the West, look at other nations and compare their law with our law. Compare their God with our God and there is no comparison. If you watched uh, any of the NFL draft, which I commend you if you did not, but if you did, you would often hear You know this player here is really comparable to this player here who's been in the NFL for 10 years and you can see his track record. All I'm saying is there's no comparison between gods. You have God and there is no comparison. There's no comparison uh, the way sometimes we would compare tornadoes. Well, was that tornado as powerful as the one in such and such a place in such and such a year? There's no comparison. And just like sometimes when a, a real estate agent might say, well, the comp for this house is this one just a couple streets away. There's no comparison. Go as far as you want to look. There's no God, there's no law as good as our God and as good as his law. So, five reasons to obey God. The first, God judges when unfaithful. Second, God's law is good. Third, God revealed his holiness, so obey him. This is in verses 9 through 24, particularly talking about the way he revealed his holiness at Mount Sinai. God revealed his holiness. Fourth, God will judge future disobedience. This is verses 25 through 31. God will judge future disobedience. And here, you have a a verse that's quoted in the book of Deuteronomy that essentially, let me just tell you, God says, don't worship other gods. But if you disobey me, you're going to go to another land and you're going to worship other gods. That's going to be your punishment. You're going to get what you wanted. But it's going to be another land. You're going to worship gods that don't have, uh, they're, they're gods of stone and wood, they're a work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell, and you're going to hate it. It's going to be a miserable time. But let me tell you, when you're in that situation, because of your future disobedience, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. That should sound familiar too, because that's in Jeremiah 29. The, uh, Jeremiah quotes Deuteronomy chapter 4 when he says, Seek the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and he will be found of you. So God will judge future disobedience. And then fifth, fifth reason to obey God. God loves and cares for his people. That's verses 32 through 40. God loves and cares for his people. And essentially here, what Moses does, it says, go back in time as far as you can. Go back to the beginning of the earth when God created the heavens and the earth, he says. And then look from one end of space to the other. Go north, go south, go east, go west, and see if there has ever been a god who has carried you the way that god has carried uh, the way that if go back and look and see if there is a god that has carried people the way that your god has carried you has this ever happened before absolutely not and he uses language from Genesis 1 and 2 about not making anything in the likeness of another person he uses the language of of Exodus 3 he uses the language of Exodus 19 and on and on and all he's saying is if you're even remotely aware of how God has worked in the past. You know He's good, and you know He's worth following. You know He has taken care of you. So follow Him. Cling to Him. Hold fast to Him. And even earlier in chapter 4, this hold fast language was there. You were terribly disobedient in Numbers 25. You were embarrassing. It was terrible the way you were whoring is the word in, in, in Numbers 25. After These people who are worshiping false gods and you aligned yourself with them. You said this is wonderful and you face judgment for it. And God says, even in that, I was showing you what it means to hold fast. And he says, those of you who didn't do that, those of you who held fast to me are here this day. In other words, you are alive. You are being blessed because of your obedience. So God loves and cares for his people. And so Christian, as we wrap up, I just want to encourage you that God himself goes before you. He did that for Israel in what way? How did they know that God was in their presence? The cloud by day, the fire by night. Christian, we don't see that cloud, we don't see that fire, but in the person of Christ who came as a man and lived a perfect life and died in your place and came back to life and ascended to heaven in victory, you can know, you can trust him, and you can obey him. And so follow him with all your heart and teach your children and your grandchildren to follow him because he loves and cares for you. The Lord is the one who goes before us. He will abide no competitor. And so I just want to urge you to be aware of what is calling for your allegiance, what worldly allurements there are. This is what we talked about in Sunday school these last several weeks with the book, Competing Spectacles. The world wants your attention It is glittering. It is shining. It is flashing. And the Lord says, no, follow me. Set aside these worthless spectacles and follow me all the way to the end. Christian, hold fast to the Lord as he has cared for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness to us despite our rebellion, despite our failings. We thank you that you have shown your kindness through the way you have led us in our lives, through the ways you've so faithfully provided for us, that we, as your sheep, have never lacked and never will want again, never will lack again, because we are your people. We are following you all the way to the end. We pray you give us grace to do that, to obey even when our hearts are tugging for us to sin or to rebel or to neglect, and on and on. We pray that we would be your faithful children, inspired and compelled and enabled by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.